0: Uh, it's my pleasure this morning to uh, introduce our preacher. Uh, He he is our our, church for 26 years. He's recently retired, but he's also my father-in-law. So uh, I dated Courtney since, man, she was 15 or 16. So uh, Mark was like a second dad to me, so it, it is a great joy to introduce uh, Mark to you this morning. Uh, he's a man who loves the Lord, and, and I kind of I lived at their house for many years, so I can attest <laughs> to that. So uh, let's welcome Mark up as he uh, preaches for us this morning. Strict that down, so not, don't think about you know Harry Potter and you know all that kind of stuff, but now shrink it down and think about like Christian life books. So who, who are you gonna whose book are you gonna buy without even haven't have a recommendation just because there are names on it. So go ahead and chat like three or four seconds with the person sitting next to you, and then I'm going to ask you to throw out some names and see what kind of, um, see if we agree on any of those kinds of names. Got, got, any, got any Christian authors whose books you just have to have as soon as they become available? Okay, I need a name or two. Well, how about way in the back? We'll start way in the back. and we'll work our way forward. Is there a name in the back? Pretty bashful this morning. Any names? David Yeah, I don't know that name, but that's a great name. How about, how, about, how about another name? You said Chuck Swindoll? You are dating yourself. Wow, that's an old name. Talk about him in a minute. Yeah, Tim. I would guess that Tim Keller, maybe Andy Stanley, maybe B'nai Brown, um, Brown, maybe David Paul Tripp, you know, those kinds of people. Do, do we, we kind of miss a big name here? Anybody? How about up front? Matt, Matt, what would you come up with? Yeah, we had Keller as well, and we had Andy Stanley. Andy Stanley, yeah, those are great names. Well, I want to talk about Chuck Swindoll for a moment. This is a little bit generational ago. Uh, Chuck Swindoll's a pastor, author, lived in California a long time. Um, actually, has published over 70 books. That's a bunch. And uh, I probably have 50 of them. And, and for a while, I kind of considered him like a distant mentor. He's probably 15 years older than me. Uh, he pastored a church. I pastored a church. There was a lot of connection that way. So kind of what he had to say seemed relevant to me. Turns out I went to the same school that he did. Actually, Matt went to the same school that he did. So um, when Chuck Swindoll would write a book, I'd want to get it. Well, I want to tell you a story about Chuck. Um Because this is really at the heart of what we're going to talk about this morning. So Chuck Swindoll never went to college. He went from high school right into the Marines. And in the Marines, he met Christ. When he busted out of the Marines and came home, he decided he wanted to be in ministry. So he went to Dallas Seminary, where Matt and I went. And he took all the classes. Now, you're supposed to have a college degree before you go to Dallas Seminary, but Chuck was kind of one of these special people. They let him in without a college degree. In his third year, he took a class from a guy who actually ended up mentoring me. So we kind of shared this mentor together. And they had to write an assignment on the story of a book in the Bible. So Chuck writes this 10-page paper and turns it in. And his professor, a guy we call Prof, handed it back, graded, and wrote at the top, A+. And that didn't surprise anybody. Swindoll's a bright guy. He had insight, all the rest. But underneath, underneath this, this professor wrote, Someday you're going to be one of the world's best Bible teachers. Hurry up. Now, I just have to ask you a question. Did you just get, like, goosebumps when I said that? Does something grab you kind of right in here when a teacher would say to a student, I can't wait for you to become fully developed. Hurry up. Every time I reflect on that story, I think about the power of an encouraging word from one person to another. Even Solomon talks about this in the, in the, in the book of Proverbs. In chapter 27, he writes, The sweet smell of perfume. I probably pushed this twice. Let's see if this works. Well, I thought I knew how to drive this. Oh, that's my whole passage, you know? Huh. Proverbs 27. I didn't include this verse. Verse 9. says, the sweet smell of perfume and oils is pleasant, and so are good words from a friend whatever cooking and odors do for the senses words of encouragement do to the soul you've experienced it i've experienced it the story i just told you about chucks Swindoll describes it fully when i first came to christ one of the very first verses that they encouraged me to memorize was this verse in hebrews chapter 10 Hmm. hmm. If you have a Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. You may even know this verse. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his returning is drawing near. Encouragement is one of those things that we get to do to each other to make us Better. And the writer of Hebrews says that's going to get more and more needy as the days move along. That's the effect we can have on each other. Listen to what one of the preachers from the 20th century said One of the highest of human duties is the duty of encouragement. It's easy to laugh at men's ideals, it's easy to pour cold water on people's enthusiasm and discourage others. The world is full of discouragers. We have a Christian duty to encourage one another. Many a time, a word of praise or thanks or appreciation or cheer has kept someone on their feet. Blessed is the man who speaks such a word. Matt described last week, our study through the book of 1 Thessalonians is a study of being countercultural. And this effect of encouragement, one of us on another, is one of the main ways that that encourages, happens. So what I'd like to do today is talk about the ministry of encouragement. What really happens when we encourage each other? How does it take place? Because I think First Thessalonians is actually a letter of encouragement. There's no question that they've asked that he needs to answer. There's no, like... A disturbing issue that he has to solve there's no rebuke that he needs to give to them if you read Thessalonians all five chapters you come away with like hey this is a book about encouragement and there's a lot for us to learn here so let's uh turn to first Thessalonians if you can um we're gonna learn a lot we, we might want to start uh, before we get to first Thessalonians in the book of Acts as Matt talked about last week there's a lot that happens before you actually get the words of first Thessalonians so let's review just a little bit Much like in our day, in those days, cities that were ports where you could bring ships in and cities that landed on major thoroughfares where caravans and travelers went turned out to be pretty important cities, and Thessalonica is just like that. It's the capital of its region. It's a huge metroplex. There's probably 100,000 people that live there, which in Paul's day, that's a big city. It's cosmopolitan. There's lots of art. There's lots of science. There's... there's, um, There's all kinds of religion. There's gods from every part of the world. And Paul ends up bringing the gospel to Thessalonica. And this is what I want you to see in Acts chapter 17. It says Paul went in. He's in the city, as was his custom, meaning he had a strategy. He thought through, how do we take the gospel to people that have never heard it before? You might ask yourself sometime, what was Paul's strategy? And chase it down. Well, here's a piece of it. On three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Now, you know a Sabbath happens every seven days, right? So this is probably three Fridays in a row. So it's almost a month. He comes in and he explains and proves, so that's all Old Testament stuff, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. That that was something they didn't really understand just by looking at the Old Testament. Paul had to explain that to them. And then he said, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you, he is the Christ. So he starts with what they know and he leads them all the way to Jesus. Now watch this. This is phenomenal to me. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. So I hope you're asking some of who Well, that's the Jews who were in the synagogue where Paul went and reasoned with them. And I just ask, how many are some? Five? Probably not. Probably more, right? Maybe 20. Maybe 50. Maybe 100. Watch this. As did a great many of the devout Greeks. So you realize that in the ancient world, people who followed Judaism were a group, and people who didn't follow Judaism were everybody else. The Bible's word for those are Greeks or Gentiles. So Paul's reasoning with the Jews, but always in every community, they were a fear of curious people who were not of Jewish faith, but who were God fears and were watching and listening and learning. So he's reasoning with the Jews and, and the Greeks go, hey, we're intrigued by this. This Jesus, tell us more. And so it says a great many of the devout Greeks. Now, how many is a great many? What do you think? It's got to be more than 10, right? 50 I I don't know there's there's a great many Greeks and then we're not we're not done with the list yet so we got a a whole bunch of Jews now we got some devout Gentiles or Greeks and I love the way this is said not a few of the leading women which means what lots I, I I don't know why you say not a few when you could write lots but he writes not a few so who are we talking about when you're talking about a leading woman Well, I think in our world, and please, this is just a representative list. There is no attempt to try to line up with any of the particular places that these women come from. So you'd, you'd have to talk about someone like Barbara Walters or Margaret Thatcher or Oprah or Michelle Obama or Condoleezza. I mean, when you talk about a leading woman, it would be a woman whose name people would recognize for some reason, right? And there are not a few of them. How many is not a few? 20. If I said there were eight, you say, well, that's a few. So it has to be, it has to be a double digit number, right? Folks, I just want you to see that Paul spent maybe a month in Thessalonica and there's a church the size of the well there. And it's from every stripe of life. You know, Christianity was a Jewish sect for a while, it's just mostly Jews, but not anymore. Now we've got Gentiles, we've got, we got all these leading women, in probably less than six weeks. So hang on to that, because here's what happens next, Acts 17. The Jews were jealous. Now, why would you be jealous? Because people who had kind of been in your circle kind of looked up one day and went, oh, what's going on over there? And they made their way over to what the Apostle Paul and Silas were doing, and they're no longer here. Do you, do you feel that? I pastored a non-denominational church. That's that's what the well is. We're not connected to anybody. When the non-denominational church in the 60s and the 70s became kind of a reality, guess who struggled the most with it? Not the culture. They didn't know what to do with us. The people who struggled the most with us were what we call the mainline denominations the Episcopalians, the Lutherans, the Presbyterians, the Roman Catholics, those people didn't know what to do because a lot of their people left to go check out this non-denominational church. That's going on right here in Thessalonica. So what they decide to do is not figure out, well, why are people attracted over there with Paul and Silas, and could we find out what's true? They didn't do that. They just said, we'll create a disruption, So they go, and they take some wicked men of the rabble. That's an interesting thing to do. Here's spiritual people, supposedly, jealous, and what do they do? They go incite a riot. So they formed a mob. They created a disturbance. They set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason. Now, Jason's the guy who sponsored Paul and Silas. He's living in their house while he's in this town. And things get so heated that they put Paul and Silas on the next buggy out of town at night when nobody can find them, and they send them down the road. The next little town down the road is Berea. And after a few days, they end up leaving Berea, and they end up in this little town called Corinth down in Greece. When Paul gets to Corinth, he can't get his heart and his head away from Thessalonica. So in 1 Thessalonians 2, you'll see this in a few weeks, This is what's going on in Paul's heart. Since we had been torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart. In other words, they they took us and they sent us away. But we never really left you because we were thinking about you. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. In fact, if you read it, Paul actually made plans to visit them. He just couldn't pull them off. Therefore, when we could no longer bear it, you have to feel the emotion going on in Paul's life. This was driving us crazy. We were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, that's what Corinth, and sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker to you. So Paul's out of his mind. He's got to know what's going on in this church that he started. But he can't go, so he sends Timothy. As a side note, I'm trying to get the gauge on how old everybody is here. It's kind of hard with masks. If you're on the younger end of things, and I'll let you decide whether you're on the younger or older side of things, you need to mark Timothy down as, I need to check this guy out. He's half Paul's age. He's a remarkable person. If you wanted to pattern your life after somebody, Timothy would be a good person to do that with. So he sends Timothy from Corinth at, own, at his own expense. Like, I'm going to pay his way, and not only that, but I'm going I'm to be without him. Which has got a cost, right? And I'm going to send him to Thessalonica and tell him, go check them out, tell them how much we love them." So here's what happens, First Thessalonians chapter three. Timothy goes. <laughs> and now that Timothy has come back to us, and brought us good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. So Timothy goes, he mixes it up with the Thessalonians, and now he goes back and he says, Paul, you won't believe what's happening, it's great stuff. And that just makes Paul's heart get even bigger. So Paul sits down, takes out some paper and a pen, and writes what you have as the book of 1 Thessalonians. So here's my first point about encouragement, just from reading what you just read, and that is this, that the challenge of encouragement is always, always, always initiative. The barrier between here and there, between not encouraging and encouraging, is always about initiative. Encouragement does not happen on the backstroke. It never happens casually. It happens because somebody, somewhere, decided to encourage another person. It requires effort. It requires discipline. It often requires sacrifice. Matt talked last week about swimming upstream in culture. That's what it takes to be an encourager, is to make a decision. See, encouragement is what happens when one person moves towards another, and that takes effort. And that person is emboldened, is is um, supported, is strengthened, finds courage to live a fuller life. That's what happens with encouragement. And notice that it's always expressed; it finds its way to out. It occurs when Timothy is sent to the Thessalonians. It happens when Paul says something to them. It's always expressed, which is why I think encouragement always happens in written form or spoken form. Now, let me talk just a minute about social media for for you guys. The like button on Facebook is like the bottom rung of the encouragement ladder. I mean, let's face it, if you post something on Facebook and five of your friends give it a thumbs up, there is something that happens inside, right? You go, hey, someone read what I wrote. They they like what I wrote. And there's a little bit of encouragement there. But if all you ever do is push the like button on Facebook, you probably need to take a few more steps towards encouragement. Years and years ago, I met a guy named Glenn Smith. He lived in the jungles of Peru with the Chechua Indians, very primitive, no electricity, no running water. I mean, he lived right there, and he took the gospel of Christ to these folks. He was home one time on a a leave, and I took him out, and we had lunch together, and I said, Glenn, tell me what it's like there. And he said, you know, Mark, um, lots of people pray, and it's really great. A few people write. Now, remember, this is probably back in the 70s and 80s were mail, if you were gonna send a letter to someone in the jungles of Peru, it took a long time to get there. He said, a few people write. Once in a great while, a ham radio operator will patch a phone call through so that we can talk to somebody back home. Nobody comes. He said, a few people pray. Once in a while, we get a letter. Very rarely we get a phone call, but nobody comes. Some of you have traveled the world. This church, like a lot of churches, have decided to make an investment in in Latin America or in Africa, third world countries. Have you seen what happens to the lives of the believers in those places when you show up? They're just like blown away that you would even come because they're encouraged by your presence. Some time ago, I was at a funeral, and uh, it happened to be for an older person, so there were a lot of older people at the funeral, and afterwards, everyone was kind of gathered around greeting each other, and I I noticed out of the corner of my eye that there was this friend of mine, an older gentleman I hadn't seen in quite a while. Uh, We used to go to church together. We don't go to church together anymore, COVID and all the rest, and he's kind of hovering over there, and he's kind of making his way through the crowd, and I can tell he's coming to see me. When Jerry stepped into my presence, he, he was kind of waiting for people to kind of go away, and he, he kind of grabbed me by the arm, and he kind of moved me over this, and he leaned in, and he said, I don't know if I'll ever get a chance to talk to you like this again. I mean, he's in his late 70s. I'm in my late 60s. I think, I think he could see that, you know, if we're not in the same church anymore, there's just going to be very few opportunities for us to cross paths. He said, I want you to know you had a remarkable impact on my life for the years we were in the same church together. In fact, you probably had the deepest impact anybody's ever had outside of Jesus. You changed the way I look at my work. You changed the way I looked at my marriage. And he said, I want to thank you. Now, it just so happened, I mean, that was a huge encouragement to me. It just so happened that that was two days before Matt asked me to speak here. (laughs) So for all the reasons I could come up with why I wouldn't do this, When Jerry told me that, I said, that's just a no-brainer. I mean, are you kidding? That's what encouragement does, but it requires initiative. So let's hit the pause button for just a second here and ask this question. Have you thanked God lately for the people in your life who have done that kind of thing? Teachers, coaches, parents, friends, mentors people who have encouraged you to stay at it or whatever, who took whatever they needed to take, jot you a note, give you a gift, show up in your place. Thank God for those folks. And then I'm sure you're thinking like I've been thinking as I've been working through this, who in my life needs that sort of encouragement from me? And what would it look like if I took the initiative to give that encouragement? Would I, would I write something? Would I call them? Would I email them? What, what, what would it look like? All right, the clock is not our friend. Let's go on to the second thing that I think is happening here in this letter, and that is that the core of encouragement, at the center of it, is this new life that we have in Christ. It's one thing to congratulate somebody on getting a promotion or cheer them for making a team or scoring a basket or whatever it might be, but at the center of real encouragement is who God is and what he has done. When you put God in the equation, all kinds of encouragement comes. This is rooted in good news, and that's what Paul says here. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 4. We know, brothers, loved by God that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction for you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. These are two huge sentences about transformation. Encouragement comes when you recognize you're not the same person you used to be. So let's talk about this for just a moment. Here's the first thing that happened. Divine initiative. Talk about being encouraged. God chose you. Verse 4. See, most of us use words like, you know, well, I trusted Christ when I was a freshman in college. Or I invited Jesus into my life. Or I became a Christian. And those words all have kind of us as the subject, which is right. But we forget that at the beginning of all that was God's initiative. If he hadn't moved towards us, there would never be any new life. Look at this, John 15. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Ephesians chapter 1. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Let's not forget where spiritual life really starts. It starts at the heart of God and moves towards us. That's where it begins. We uh, we raised four kids. Matt married one of them. When they were small, we used to tuck them into bed at night. And when nobody was looking, we'd lean into their ear and we'd say, you know, if they lined up all the kids in the world, I'd choose you. Well, that's what God did. He chose you. Not because of who you are. It just comes out of his character. Now, notice what happens next in verse 5. Our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. So here's what happens. The gospel comes into a person's world. It's in word because you have to understand there is sin that separates us from God. There is a Savior, God's Son, who comes into the world. He dies on the cross in our place, and he's raised to new life. That's the message of the gospel. It comes in articulated words. If you don't understand that, you've never come to Christ but it doesn't stay in words. Look at this. It comes in power in the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit doesn't regenerate us, doesn't give us response to that word, we never come to new life. The gospel does require a response, but it's a prompted response because the Holy Spirit initiates it. And notice it comes with conviction. People put their whole confidence in the message of Jesus dying for them. They don't just play with it. They don't just, mm, I wonder what about it. They, put the, they transfer the whole weight of their lives to Christ. And Paul says, I love this line. You know what kind of men we were. He was, We didn't coerce you, <laughs> there weren't any bribery. We didn't instill the fear of God And We just told you this was who Jesus was and what he did. Will you respond? And that's how they responded. Now, watch the result of that. It's back in verse four you became brothers loved by God you got a new father, and you got a new family. Vertical, you are loved by God. Horizontal, you have a family of brothers and sisters in Christ. See, the reason Paul could encourage the Thessalonians is they have this brand new experience. You don't have the life you used to have because you're not the same person you used to be. Talk about encouragement. And we, we run right by that. We think, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I guess I should be encouraged. But it's true. See, there was, a, there was a story going around Thessalonica that the rapture had already happened, that somehow they had displeased God, and they'd missed it. And Paul says, no, no, you don't understand. He chose you. You're his beloved. You're, you're his children. You're brothers of each other. God hasn't given up on you. God is no distance from you. I love the song we sang today, God with us, God for us. That's the essence of encouragement. It's this brand new life. No need to fear. Try this sentence on for size. See if you don't believe this. In the end, everything's going to be okay. As a believer, your faith teaches you that in the end, everything's going to be okay, right? Jesus is on the throne. God is sovereign. He has a plan. In the end, everything is going to be okay. So what if everything isn't okay? Must not be the end. Right? So your new life in Christ says, in the end, everything's going to be okay. I can be encouraged even if everything's not okay because guess what? Must not be the end. Seventy years ago, the greatest threat in our culture around the world was the atomic bomb. It had been, It ended the World War II, and now it's on the screen of, okay, now the communists are going to bomb the capitalists, and the capitalists are going to bomb the communists, and that whole thing, right? C.S. Lewis was alive then. Fear of the atomic bomb was shaking people to the core of their experience. Much like in our world today, there are some things like really shaking us to our core, right? we got more racial disunity than we've ever had. We've we, we got the threat of terrorism around the world. We've got a pandemic that's got everybody shaking in their boots. Can I read to you what C.S. Lewis wrote about atomic bombs? And as I read that, will you take atomic bombs out and will you put whatever it is that you think is the greatest crisis, the biggest fear you have today, whether it's the pandemic or global warming or immigration, whatever it might be, will you just take that word atomic bomb out and put this in? Here's what C.S. Lewis wrote. In one way, I think that we think too much about the atomic bomb. We ask, how are we to live in an atomic age? You probably wondered that too. How are we supposed to live with a pandemic? How are we supposed to live? He says, I'm tempted to reply why you should live the same way you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year. Or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat out at night or as you are already living in an age of cancer, or an age of railway accidents, or motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all, you, all whom you love are already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was even invented. And a quite high percentage of us are going to die, like all of us. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world already bristling with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all but a certainty. Now, this is what I love. This is the first point to be made. But the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible things, human things like praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, I love this one, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not hold together like frightened sheep thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies, and then he writes in parentheses, a microbe could do that. <laughs> Wouldn't he love to be alive today? But they need not dominate our minds. In the end, everything is going to be okay. Be encouraged. All right, the third thing, and we're going to fly through this one, is that the content, the actual stuff of encouragement, is all about remembering and highlighting and pleading for the stuff of the new life and he comes at this a couple of different ways we'll, we'll, we'll really go fast here the first thing he says is you have become imitators and this always fascinated me of us and the lord now i don't mind telling somebody you become an imitator of me or i don't mind telling them, you become an imitator of the lord but when you put the us and the lord together it makes you wonder what is he talking about And here it is what I think it is. It says, you're going to resemble somebody else in this way. You're going to take whatever it is that God has said, and you're going to follow it. You're going to obey it, but not out of duty or drudgery or with a long face. You're going to do it with joy, like, God, you've spoken. We get to follow you. And you're going to do that in the midst of opposition, of affliction. So you've done the very thing that Jesus did. He followed God's plan with joy in spite of opposition. You've done the thing we've done. You've you've followed what God has asked you to do with joy in spite of opposition. So much so, this radical change that you've done, that you've actually have a reputation. You've become an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Really? You mean people could say, hey, have you you seen any Christians? Oh, I saw some in Thessalonica. They're like like little Jesuses. They follow God with great joy in spite of the fact that it's not always easy. That's how they live. Talk about countercultural. Now, it does ask this question, right? How? What way were they examples? I mean, were were their marriages radically different? Maybe. Did they they view their money like they got out of debt or they they gave it away? Was their financial life that remarkable? I mean, could you drive down their street and go, yep, there's a Christian, there's a Christian? Nope, that's not a Christian. I mean, how was it that they were examples of people who followed Christ? And we don't know all the answers to that, but I think there's a couple of hints in the first verse of this passage. So Paul says, we give thanks always for you, making mention in our prayers, and now he's going to point out three things. For the work of your faith, the labor of your love, and the hope, the steadfastness of your hope. These are like the big three of the Christian life, right? 1 Corinthians 13, these three things remain, faith, hope, and love, the greatest of them is love. So can we talk about these for just a second? We're really flying through this stuff, but... I thought we ought to talk about them, and I'd like to put them in reverse order. We'll talk about love first, then hope, and then faith, because I think that's the easiest way to talk about them. So let's talk about love. Most of us think love's an emotion, and love is an emotion. You can be in love, but love is also an action, a decision. And as the decision is made, when I act or uh, seek the best of somebody else, regardless of what it would cost for me, that's love, right? Take sacrifice, take servanthood. So Paul says, when when you see love in action, like he sees in the Thessalonians, be encouraged. That's the new life springing out of you. It's love. Look at this next one, hope. What is hope? Well, hope is recognizing that today is not all there is. There is a tomorrow. There is a better future. I, I hope you know this isn't all there is and that what's coming is even better that's what hope is. So when you don't confuse the now and the then, that's a the person who lives in hope. So you lower your expectations. You never expected it to be any better than this. You don't complain because, hey, why would I complain? This is the way Jesus said in the world you're going to have trouble. We got lots of trouble. Hope means I put in my all my cards in the future. Now I don't check out, but I don't expect now what's reserved for then. I thought a great illustration of this. People who write checks to kingdom work. Talk about hope. I sit down I write this check. I'll just make it, make it $100. I'm going to write a check for $100. I went, wow. You know what I could do with that $100? I could buy some new clothes. I, I, I could get some new on, some streaming services online. I, I, there's a lot of things I could do with $100. Bucks. You know what I do with it? I give it to a kingdom cause. Why? Because I believe that the future... The kingdom of God. The people who need to meet Christ are more important than today. I know you guys uh, several months ago, right? You had this big campaign to say we we got to find a place to meet as a church, and some of you said, "Count me in." I have no idea how God's going to help me do this, but I'm going to. And you put some big amount on a piece of paper and said, "We're in for this." And I'm thinking, those are people who live by hope, because what God's doing. Now, in light of the future, it's way more important than anything else that's going on today. All right, one more here. And that is light, faith, confidence in the one who loved me. See, the, the contrast in the scriptures to living by faith is living by sight. So the believer who says, I can't see everything, but that's okay. I still know God has a plan, that God is good that i can trust him and that he's worthy of my life when you take that posture the fruit of the new life is beginning to find expression in your experience and i hope you are encouraged that's what god's doing and if you see that in somebody else encourage them and when you see it in yourself be encouraged The challenge of encouragement is that it takes initiative, decisions. The core of it is this brand new life that God has given us where things are not the same anymore, and the content of encouragement is the faith, the hope, and the love that God continues to bring into our experience. In several weeks, you're going to get to this verse in 1 Thessalonians 5. Encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. The Apostle Paul's relationship with the Thessalonians was always a relationship of encouragement. What he could see happening in them encouraged his heart. What he could see them doing for each other encouraged him as well. And now he says to them, hey, encourage one another. Build one another up just as you're doing. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to share the Lord's table together. Because there are very few things that we can do together that remind us of the new life that Jesus initiated inside of us and the faith, the hope, and the love that that is bringing about in our experience. It is so encouraging to us when we look at the well to see this this cadre of believers who are swimming upstream and living at odds with all the culture around them in their faith, their hope, and their love. Be encouraged. Let me pray, and then we'll take the Lord's table together. Lord, uh, there is so much in this text that reminds us that the trajectory of our lives changed the day we met Christ. And that, Lord, there, there, is, there is reason for hope today and a bright hope for tomorrow. There's a reason that we can move today with confidence even into a broken world because you have not abandoned us or left us. And Lord, there's a reason we can move towards each other with sacrifice and servanthood because that's how you move towards us. We are grateful for the truth of the gospel in our experience and the changes that it creates in our lives. Now we take this very simple symbol to remind us that that came at great cost. That your body was broken, your blood was shed on our behalf. And we take it with joy. Amen. If you have the thing that you received when you came through the door, you may actually go get one if you need one. We'll take the Lord's table.